Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles, open them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We are studying the book of Acts together. This is your first Sunday here. We're going through it thought by thought, seeking to understand God's Word and what He has for us. We have left off here the passage that Matt read at the beginning of the service, I'm going to read it again here in a few minutes, but Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, just to give you a little perspective as to where we are in this text, um, we are beginning the section, kind of the third section of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really divided into three sections. It's not even. It's most of the section, the, most of the, the book is on the last section, but it involves, begins with a ministry in Jerusalem and how the gospel spread into Jerusalem, and then it moves into the second section, Judea and Samaria. And here in chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, we begin the movement of the gospel into the world. So it's that third great movement of the book as it's making its way into the world. And, and as it's doing that, we begin with Peter. Peter actually is really the key, one of the keys to that kind of, uh, you know, makes that first crack into the, to the worldwide movement of the gospel. He sets the table for Paul, who's going to go out and, and, and be the missionary who's sent. But, uh, but what happens here in chapter 9 is we, we begin uh, the last three stories we have of Peter, basically. These are his last big three events. First is this healing that he has that we'll look at today where God uses him to heal two people, and then it moves into his work with Cornelius, a Gentile, and then finally his imprisonment and his escape. And so we, we have these last three events, and all three of these events, they, they, they start a, a trigger of a worldwide movement. In fact, Luke even does something in here, and I'll point it out to you when we get there, but Luke is beginning to even acknowledge Gentiles, or what that means are non-Jews, he's beginning to acknowledge Gentiles in his letter. You'll see it here because he tells us that Tabitha's Greek name is Dorcas. And when Matt read that, I don't know if you noticed that. And then at one point he refers to her as Dorcas. He's beginning to acknowledge Gentile readership. Prior to that point, he didn't do a lot of explanation. I don't know why, but in the letter, the idea is that Luke, he, he kind of triggers himself. He lets you kind of know where he's going in the book. He sends you little signals ahead of time of what he's about ready to talk about. And he introduces ideas before he develops them. And, and so now we're going to get the idea about the Gentiles, about the gospel going to the nations, to the world. And this is the start of it, and it begins with this healing. And, and in order to understand this section, I, I want you to kind of understand healing and why healing, how, I should say this way, how a Gentile would understand healing. And the, when we get into, the, into, the, into the, the text itself, we'll talk about the Jewish understanding and how they would have interpreted seeing somebody healed. But Luke is acknowledging a Gentile readership. And the Gentiles, when they see these stories of healing, when they read them, they're going to have an understanding of God that's going to blow them away. And I want to just explain that to you so that you can kind of start processing this, this book through the lens of a, of a non-Jewish reader, because now we're moving into the nations. Hopefully this is making sense what I'm saying here. So, so let me try to explain this to you so you'll understand it. You know, the, the Gentiles that are reading this, this, this uh, letter, they have a, uh, or this book, this narrative, they have an understanding of God that's different than the Jewish understanding or the Christian understanding of God. You know, we talk about 
in our day, like we'll talk about Jesus being in our heart. We talk about these very personal terms. You know, God loves me. I love God. Now, if you were a Gentile living at the time here in the first century, you wouldn't have thought of, of the gods as being personal. Right? Do you, you remember from school, those of you who studied Greek mythology in school, do you remember that section if you went to school and you studied that? I didn't like that section. Because the, the gods just annoyed me. They were so narcissistic, weren't they? If you studied it, like, they were just self-absorbed. And the humans on the planet, they're just trying to like, get their attention. Hey, we're going to give you a sacrifice. We're going to go dip ourselves in a river. We're going to do this. Just to try to get you to notice us that maybe you might bless us. But then you read the stories and the gods are just absorbed with their own self, their own way, their own thoughts. The thought of God being with us, not in a Gentile mindset at all. So Luke is beginning the section on the, on, the, on the mission to the world with a very strong point. Jesus is not only God, and he's not only the Messiah, but he's with us. He's at the bedside of a paralyzed man. He's at the bedside of a dead woman. And he's touching them and giving them life. God is with us. And as we begin the Gentile movement, that is what we see. God is with us. And I want us to see that today. So what we're going to do is a little bit different. You know my normal kind of MO is to read a section, explain it, read a section, explain it. What I want to do is I want to just read the whole account one more time so it's fresh in our mind. And then I just want to highlight a couple parts of the account. And then we're going to go right to what I hope, hopefully is Luke's application, what he wants us to see, and then we'll talk about what that should mean for us. So slightly different, but I hope that you can really capture an understanding of Jesus in a way that strengthens you, encourages you, and equips you. Hopefully you'll, you'll get all that today. But let's begin, let's just begin by reading the account, and uh, I will try to do this. I have been resisting bifocals, but I think this is the year, Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to do my best. I actually have to take my glasses off now and hold the Bible out a little bit further away. So this is bad. I'm sorry. Okay, Luke 9, 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand, raised her up. 
Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. There is the account. Now in this account, as you can see, there are two miracles that are part of this account. The first miracle is this miracle of Aeneas. It's an interesting miracle. Where it comes from is that now that, that, that Paul is no longer going after the believers, there's some relative peace, and so Peter's on a journey. So he's going a little north and a little east of Jerusalem, and he's going up into these regions to these towns that actually weren't towns that were uh, set up by the, uh, 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 when, when Moses was, was dividing up the land and sending them out. Uh, Lydda was actually not one of the towns that was developed. Lydda was developed after the Babylonian captivity, it had some uh, half Jews and half Gentiles in there. It was a, kind of a, a worldly town, you'd call it that. And, uh, but, but churches are forming there. Philip, is, the impact of his ministry is impacted all the way into Lydda. So Peter's on like a leadership tour. He's going around and visiting the churches. When he's there, he comes across this guy, Aeneas. Now I want you to picture in your mind what somebody would look like if they were paralyzed and lying in a bed for eight years. Have you, ever, you know, I, I have visited people. I've prayed with people who were paralyzed and, and for years. And if you, if you could just imagine, you don't use your muscles for a year. You know, you shrivel up. I mean, right, the atrophy just sets in. So, so you're talking about a guy whose legs are shriveled up, his arms are shriveled up. He's probably not eating right. There's probably all kinds of muscular issues that go on that impact the way he eats, impacts the way he breathes. I mean, all that's involved with paralysis of that long is pretty intense. I want you to picture that in your mind. I want you to picture in your mind somebody for eight years, what they would look like. They were on a bed for eight years, paralyzed. I want you to picture that. And I want you to just think for a moment of what, of what it would be like for somebody like that to get healed. Now look at the story here. Look at verse 34. It says, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Every parent wants that to be the life verse for their children, but you can't use it that way. Okay? <laughs> you cannot use it that way. It's off limits. Okay? That is not the point. Kids are taking notes right now. I just want you to know. They've got suddenly engaged. I don't have to make my bed. Okay. It's not the point. What you have to catch here for a moment is a couple things. Notice what Peter says. He sees the guy, and he says, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, heals you. Powerful statement, right? Now, everybody in Israel knows that Jesus existed, and they know that he was crucified. It was public knowledge. Everyone knew it. Not everybody understood that he had risen from the dead. He's talking present tense. He's saying, Jesus Christ heals you. Powerful statement. You've got to mark that because we're going to come back to that point. It's very important because, and we're going to unpack this in a minute, but, but here's the idea. Our understanding of the gospel that we don't go to the world and promote a religion. 
right? We don't do that. Our goal is not to run around the country and just tell people, here's the right religion. We don't go around the world and promote an idea or a philosophy. Here are just some great ideas that you could run your life by. They'll help you with your finances. They'll help you with your marriage. They'll help you with your children. We don't run around the world and do that. We run around the world and we tell people, God revealed himself in Jesus. And Jesus died and he rose and he's alive. And in him is life. In him is truth. In him is meaning. In him is power. We go around the world telling people about Jesus. That's the key. Now I got ahead in my sermon. I got excited. Let me back up here now. Okay? Because that's the point. The point is we don't promote a religion. We tell people the truth of God. And he's in Christ. And so he's saying, Jesus Christ, he did this. Now, we know a few things about this statement here that, 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 that you need to see here. If you got in a car accident, just think about this. Let's say you got in a car accident and you were so damaged you had to be in a body cast for six months. And they did an operation and they repaired your spine and you're in this body cast and now they're going to cut the body cast off. Can you walk? No. You're going to go through physical therapy, right? Large amounts of physical therapy. And they're going to teach you to walk straight. They're going to teach you to walk up steps. They're going to teach you to sit down, stand up. They're going to strengthen your muscles, exercise you. All of that that would be involved with that if you got in a car accident. This guy has been paralyzed for eight years. And Peter is going to make the point about Jesus. What's the point? Jesus not only healed the guy, he restored him. He has full function of his legs, full function of his arms, so much that he can get right on up and make his bed. That's the whole point of making the bed. He's fully restored. He's like 100% restored. No therapy, no delay, no element of you know, overtime. Boom, right there. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the one that can snap his fingers and you could go from paralyzed to making your bed. And he doesn't need that bed anymore. He's in a different place now. And so what happens? What's the result of this? People began to place their faith in Christ. That's what the text says. They're just right now why are they doing that? Is it because of the miracle? Well, remember the miracle didn't exist within a vacuum. There were already believers there. Peter was going down to visit the saints. The message of Christ had been made known to these people, and now the power of Christ has been manifested. And by the droves, it's working, and, and people are, are placing their faith in Jesus, not just to get healed, but because he's God. He's worthy to be trusted. It's a powerful moment. Now, Luke right away takes us to a second story, to a second healing to this one of Tabitha, right? So he's just moving fast, so, he, so we'll just kind of take his cue. We go right over to Tabitha. Tabitha is a godly woman, a virtuous woman. You can tell by the story that she's making all these clothes and, and doing all this stuff, and, uh, and then Tabitha gets sick and dies. Now Luke is being sensitive to his Gentile readership, so he introduces her Gentile name. Tabitha in the Hebrew, if you're going to translate that into Greek, it would be Dorcas. And so he's now starting to sprinkle in a little bit of an international flair in his writing. And here she is. She died. But there's a unique thing that they did. The Jewish custom was that when someone died, you put them in the burial cloths and you, 
You put the perfumes on them, and you put them in the grave right away. There's not a lot of delay in this. In this case, they did something very unique. They did all the preparations. They put the perfumes on her, and then they put her in the upper room. They put her upstairs. And then they say, get Peter, quickly. Now, why are they getting them quickly? She's dead. What is the point of this? I believe that they saw the power of Christ. And so they're bringing them in here. And the widows are there mourning. And, uh, and notice verse 39, how this thing plays out. It says, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the other upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping. The widow's job in that day in Israel was to be the mourners. They would come and mourn when, when other women would die. And they would sit there and cry and, 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 and handle the remembrance. And so they're there doing their job. They're mourning and they're showing all the virtuous things that she had done. So Peter walks in, a very sad moment, right? You can picture these women crying and they're like, look, she made this and she was so virtuous. And it's really a sad moment. And he walks into the room and they're, they're in tears that this incredible woman is, is, has died. And Peter sends them out, right? He sends them out. Look at verse 40. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling to saints and widows, he presented her alive. Powerful moment. Again, though, notice Peter prays. You've got to notice that because he's not the one that's healing. He knows this. He's turning to God. He's interceding. He's humbling himself before God. He's saying, God, here, what's your will? Okay, it's that she be raised from the dead. So it raises her from the dead. It's a powerful moment. Presents her alive. There's such rejoicing. Everyone knew about it. Again, the message is, is going out because the power of God is, is being held up against the message of God, and it's a powerful moment. Now, that's the account. Right? Simple. You see it all there. What is the application of this account? What does Luke want us to get from this? Well, I want to tell you something. As you study Acts, you study this book through and through, there are always two things that are always going on in Acts. And, and they're here, very present here. The two things are this. That the, that the accounts, the miracles, all the things are always trying to show us who Jesus is and what salvation really means. Those two things always going on. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? What is the redemption that God has given us? This account shows us both of those. Let's talk about what it shows us about Jesus. Okay, First thing we see, these miracles, they're going to tell us about Jesus. They're going to tell us four things about Jesus. The first thing he's going to tell us is a simple one. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Now, we're used to that. We celebrate Easter. We sing these songs. It's not a profound truth, you know. I didn't see anybody go, oh, what, when I said that, right? You all knew it, right? It wasn't, it wasn't. But yet, it is a powerful point, and for them, incredibly powerful, because many of those people either heard or saw firsthand him be crucified. And the recognition that he's alive is so wild. That's... That's a point of emphasis, okay? <laughs> Letting our visitors know. <laughs> when I make a profound point, it just whoop, slides through. 
But here's the deal. Peter wants everyone to know Jesus is alive, and that's why he says to Aeneas, Jesus heals you. He's alive. Second thing, okay? Second thing it teaches us is that he's God. Why? How does it teach us that he's God? Only God can take someone who's been paralyzed for eight years and let him start walking without any physical therapy. Only God can breathe life into somebody, right? I remember 20 years ago, I was following the, uh, the, uh, tr- the advancement of MIT when they were trying to create artificial intelligence. And they spent, you know, billions of dollars trying to create this artificial intelligence. And they scrapped the whole project nine, ten years into it because they couldn't give life to a computer. The computer could do certain things and mimic life but the one thing that they couldn't give a computer was abstract memory. All these kinds of things, and I won't get into all that. But they couldn't do these things, things that we have, associations. You smell something, and it reminds you of something when you were a kid. And there's no real connection between that smell. All these, that's the stuff God gives to us. And God is the one that can take muscles that haven't moved in eight years and fully restore them and give them complete function as if they were never, ever weakened. Right? You think about that. Again, we talk about an accident, and you have to relearn how to use a cup sometimes. People have been so traumatized by it. Boom, fully restored. That's, he is God. Right? And that's important because that gets us to the third thing we learned about him, is that he's the Messiah. If he's alive and he's God, then he is who he said he was. Which means what? If he really is the Messiah, then his way is most important, right? His way is most important. It is amazing, though, how the human flesh thinks of Jesus only in terms of, like, your death, getting into heaven. But when it comes into, like, how you're going to handle tomorrow's stress, we don't really think about Jesus and his way and what he wants. We don't really think about terms like love, forgiveness, intimacy, joy, happiness— through the lens of Christ, oftentimes we think about it just through our personal lens. But if he's the Messiah, if he is who he claimed to be, then we find everything in him. That's why when we go around the world, we don't proclaim a religion or a philosophy or an idea. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. And that his way, he is where we find intimacy, fulfillment, joy, happiness, all of that. And the fourth thing we learn is that he's involved that he's involved. He is not just on a distant shore watching us. He's here. He's present. He's not only God, the creator of the universe, the one who can give life, but he's also intimately involved in the affairs of one woman named Tabitha. I want you to stop and think about that element of being involved. And think about it this way. Um, do you ever notice like when people want to do something wrong, they try to, get, they try to do it in secret, right? They hold things in. They, they lie. Maybe let's say somebody's going to go do something bad. They're going to go look at something on the Internet they shouldn't look at. They go into the room in the middle of the night, <clears throat> excuse me, and they, and they try to hide because they don't want anybody to see them. And yet God is everywhere. And Jesus isn't just far away. You are never alone. You are always in the presence of Christ. And he's intimately involved. And the good news is that he is merciful. And he is kind. 
And at those moments, of the secret moments of your secret sins, those are moments when you can say, God, you see my sin, but you judge Jesus for it, so please give me help right now. Because you're here, you're involved. You're right there in front of me. I never can go away from your presence. Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 139? I can't get away from you. Even if I make my bed in Sheol, I cannot escape your presence. You are everywhere. He's, and he's involved, and he cares. And I think about that in, in our life, how much we can ignore that in our flesh. And to think and, and to believe the lie that when things are going bad, you know, that lie comes in from the evil one that says, God doesn't care. If he cared, you wouldn't be in this situation. And, oh, yeah, so I'm going to blow off God now, right? Because that, that's wise. And I'll just start getting mad and shake my fist at God when the reality is he's there. He cares. He's present. He's God. He's alive. He's the Messiah. He's involved. Man, he's right there. The Gentile readers are learning something about Jesus that is different than Zeus, who's self-absorbed and into himself. These are powerful miracles. Now, I want to just for a moment, just take a second here and explain to you a little bit of even how some of the Jews would have seen these miracles as well. Because they would have even understood something even infinitely different than, than the Gentiles would have. And I just want to point this out to you so that you'd even understand, even when the Jews were experiencing this, those in Joppa and those in, 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 in Lydda, how they would have even saw these miracles. Because they understood something about the Messiah that oftentimes we can lose. You know, if you go back, and, and I would highly encourage you, by the way, to do this. If you go back and look at the book of Isaiah, and I would really encourage you to study Isaiah. The book of Acts will make so much more sense if you really study Isaiah. Because many of the things that are going on in Acts are the fulfillment of promises made in Isaiah. And the two books are linked. In the book of Isaiah, the people are sinning, and there's all this judgment that God says he's going to pour out on them for their sin. But there's a reality that God made a covenant with Israel, that he wasn't going to destroy them completely. But yet their sin is so heinous to him, judgment has to come. So there's some punishment that's going to come upon them. They're going to be kicked out of the land, and other things are going to happen. But the reality of their sin is so bad that God cannot be just and ignore it. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send someone, and I'm going to crush them. And that will make me happy because i got to judge something. Someone's got to pay for this sin, so I will send someone. And I will judge them, Isaiah 53. I will crush them, and I will make them a guilt offering so that you can be forgiven. That's what Isaiah teaches. Now the question is, how do we know who that one is that's going to come? Isaiah chapter 35 tells us that one who's going to come is going to make the deaf hear and the blind see and the dumb speak. Those who can't walk, they'll be able to walk. And those who are dead will be made alive. And you read, when that one comes, that's the one who's going to be crushed for you. And so when these Jews experience these miracles, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah. Jesus is that one who fulfilled Isaiah 53, who was crushed for me, my guilt offering, my life. So that's all kind of wound up in in these stories here. But here's the reality of the situation. Jesus then is everything. He's that one. 
the anointed one. He's alive. He's the Messiah. He's God. He's involved. Now, what do these miracles tell us about our salvation? Okay, they tell us about Jesus. They also will tell us about our salvation. And I want to I introduce a word to you or, or connect two words to help you think about salvation in a broader context, right? Oftentimes, especially in our context, salvation is, is just about, hey, when you die, where will you go? It's oftentimes the framing of it. It's not a bad framing. It's just not complete. That's all. It's missing some pieces. <clears throat> and oftentimes, we don't always make the connection between salvation and this word, healing. Healing. Now, when I say the word healing, I don't want you to think about if you have an ingrown toenail, that today that's going to go away, okay, without yanking it out. Right? That, that's not the point. That's not the kind of healing we're talking about. When mankind sinned, what happened? Everything got thrown off. We don't understand anything, man. We, we are spiritually deaf. We're spiritually blind. We're spiritually dumb. We're paralyzed. We don't know how to serve God. We can't connect with God. We don't understand anything. We don't understand relationships. We don't understand life. We don't understand how to handle our money. We don't understand how to work. Everything is all messed up. And all of humanity has been trying to resolve the effects and the impact of sin, aren't they? So they go out there, they try different strategies to to get help and and self-help things and religions and making sacrifices to wooden gods and things like that, trying to get that thing resolved. Because I guarantee that if you take somebody at 21 years old and you say, here's the deal, I'm going to give you a home, I'm going to give you $50 billion, I'm going to give you a car, and I'm going to give you 500 servants, would we help that person? Right? No one, unless you're 21 in the room, thinks that's a good idea. Right? right? Only the 21 year olds are going, hey man, let's try it. I'll be the guinea pig right now. But, it, right, most of you are going, that'd be a bad idea. Why? Because that stuff, the stuff of the world, doesn't solve it. Because we're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dumb, spiritually paralyzed, spiritually dead. Salvation. Is about God restoring what was destroyed and killed at the fall. And that's the message we get to bring to the world. So when I see the story of this man being, who was paralyzed, I not only see Jesus as being God and alive and the Messiah and involved, I not only see Scripture being fulfilled that he's the one, I also see in that the hope Though I'm not physically paralyzed, I'm spiritually paralyzed. And I, I, I can't serve God. But yet God will restore that. I see the life given to Tabitha. You know, here's the reality. Tabitha got a temporary reprieve. But she still died again. I mean, the poor girl had to die twice. Right? So did Lazarus. Right? I mean, there's more to it than this. This isn't some twisted thing of God. Like, well, let's let people die. Then we'll raise them from the dead and let them die again. Make everybody mourn all over again. You get sick all over again. You go through all that pain all over a second time. That's not hope. But yet in those moments, God is just saying, I just want to show you I'm here. But I'm also going to give you something infinitely deeper than extending your life in a fallen body. I can give you life. I can give you real life. And that is a powerful thing. And so what I learned about my salvation through this is that I get healed. That healing process begins, and then when I shed this body of sin and I get united one day to my new body, I'll be fully restored 
to the type of human that God wanted me to be. That's what he does. That's what salvation is. And that's the message we get to bring to the world. Man, you could be set free. You don't need drugs. You don't need sex. You don't need this stuff that the world offers. And give you life in Jesus. So, let's wrap it up. What do we do here? There's a few things that I hope that happens. I told you at the beginning. The first thing that I hope that happens to you is that you find encouragement in this account. And I want you to find encouragement in, in this. That God is here. That he is with us. That you are not alone. That you're in his presence And in one sense, as fearful as that might be, because you might think, yeah, he saw what you did yesterday. He saw what you did when no one was around. And you might say, that's not good. I can say, but you know what? He's merciful. And he bore the wrath that that sin deserved on the cross. And so take comfort. You stand before a merciful God. So throw yourself on that mercy. And find encouragement in that. You're not alone. When you leave this room, you are not alone. When you go home, you're not alone. When you feel anxious and worried, you're not alone. God is here. Jesus is alive. And he's God. And he's the Messiah. And he's involved. You're not alone. Second, I hope that you find strength in that. I want you to find strength in that. And here's the strength that, that, that I want us to find is in that reality that God is present. That he's not a distant God, but he's there. And I want you to find strength in that. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, what do I do wrong in, in, in the areas where I, where I, when I don't find that strength? Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, what do I need to change? And three words came to my mind. They all began with R, unintentional. But three words came to my mind that I realized is something I want to work on, and I want to share it with you. Because this is what I'm working on. And, 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 and maybe, maybe we could work on it together. It's that reality that, that I realize, you know, I'm in the presence of God, which means that every moment I want to start practicing reverence. I want to start thinking about the fact that I, I am before God. He is here. Jesus Christ is alive. He cares. He's not away. And since he's here, he'll be here tomorrow. He'll be here tonight. He'll be with me at 2 o'clock in the morning if I wake up and I can't sleep and I start worrying about things. And I want to stop and practice reverence. You know what? I am before the Messiah. This is a holy spot. And so I want to offer a moment of reverence to Jesus. Then the second R that came to my mind is repentance. And I realized, and then at that moment, I should repent of all the ways that I've lived as if Jesus was not here and involved. If I sit here and think, oh my I did this wrong. The church is going to fall apart and act as if it's all my fault. And then and Jesus is going, Leston, I'm building my church. <laughs> you could die. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to stop anything. right? I should repent of that. I should repent of trying to be Jesus. I should just repent and trust. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm living as if you're not God and as if you're not in my presence. I'm living all this worry and whatever's going on in my brain is anger or frustration or whatever it is. I'm acting as if you're not here, you're not present, you're not God, you're not alive. I want to repent of that. And then the third thing, the third R that came to my mind was the word respect. The word respect. And the reason why that word came to my mind is that, that I believe, and this is kind of my little worldview, 
that the best way you respect somebody is by listening to them. And there's an element of just saying, now I want to listen to you, God. Maybe open up your word, reflect on it, let it calm my heart, and listen to what you have to say. That's how I want to be strengthened. Reverence, repentance, respect. Because Jesus is alive, and he's God, and he's the Messiah, and he's involved. And, and, and he's healing, and he's restoring us. And then finally, the last thing is that I hope that this equips you. What I mean by that is that this is the truth we should be bringing to the world. Maybe we should stop thinking about trying to get converts and instead start thinking about bringing the message of hope. You can be set free. You don't need this junk anymore. You know, you can have everything and you're going to lose your soul and you know it. You know it in your heart. You know that giving in to the anger, the greed, the lust, the pride, you know turning yourself over to that is only destroying you. Look at yourself in the mirror, right? But Jesus is alive and he's God. And he's the Messiah and he's involved. And he can heal you. He can restore you. And you can be set free. That's what we bring. Let's start bringing that message to the world. So that's a lot to think about. So why don't we just pray and and seek the Lord together here. Bow your head with me. Father, I... We must acknowledge now that this is a sacred spot. Not because it's where we gather on Sundays, but because you're here. We can't go anywhere to escape from your presence. And so we acknowledge right now, all of us do, God, and I pray that we all would acknowledge that we are before you all the time. And in that reverence, we, we must repent because we have all tried to achieve life through our own flesh. When we worry, we're acting as if you're not in control. When we get angry, we're acting as if we're the judge of the universe. When we get lustful, we're acting as if you haven't provided everything we need for life and godliness. When we don't listen to your word and we just march on through our life, we're acting as if we're the all-wise one and we're not. Lord, we all need help standing before your presence. I thank you that as Messiah, you, you bore the judgment so we don't need to stand in guilt, but we can flee to the cross and trust that we can be restored and healed and renewed from the inside out. So for those in this room that need encouragement, Lord, may they, they hear your word, hear this word this morning, hear your scripture, see how you work in the lives of people and be renewed and restored and built up. And for those who need their pride smashed, may they recognize that they're not God. They can't give life to people. They can't raise people from the dead or make a paralyzed walk. For those of us who need our way, Lord, may we stop and say, yes, Jesus We want to live for you. We want to bow our life before you and live in your presence all the time because in there is joy. Lord, thank you for what we learn about you. Thank you, Lord, that this is the truth that we're introduced to as we're going to see how you took the gospel from Israel to the world. Lord, may it anchor us this week. May it encourage us and strengthen us and equip us 
to be ambassadors of you. In Christ's name, amen.